Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm Dr. Mike Pershawn, and I'm your host. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on narrative across media, where we're looking specifically at post-apocalyptic, apocalyptic apocalyptic narratives using Emily St. John Mandel's novel Station Eleven as our pillar. This week, we're taking a look at the section from Station Eleven titled The Airplanes and Game Narrative. So this week's going to be a bit different. There's been a lot of concepts and ways of analyzing narrative that we've been looking at in this course. And this week, I'm going to get a little more meditative, a little more perhaps philosophical, uh, certainly somewhat reflective. As we come to the section of the book titled The Airplanes, early in the section of the book, there's a conversation between... August and Kirsten in the post-apocalyptic future of Station Eleven. Station Eleven is a novel that jumps around in terms of timelines. It's a non-linear novel uh, as a result. And uh, it gets me thinking about the idea of possibility, this conversation that uh, August and Kirsten are having. Possibility. What are the other possibilities? And even just the title of Station Eleven uh, turns out to have been one among several possibilities. Um, Emily St. John Mandel visited McEwen a few years back for our Book of the Year in 2016-2017, and uh, she told us that the other possible titles that had been batted around for Station Eleven were Singapore Harbor, which makes sense because there's this moment in Singapore Harbor, and we're actually going to talk about that today because it comes right at the end of the section uh, called The Airplanes. The Traveling Symphony, that certainly makes sense. Uh, she said that uh, The Traveling Symphony was actually one of her first ideas um, that, that sort of coalesced into Station Eleven. She's told variant versions of this as I've read different interviews with her. It's almost as though she's got some possible uh, worlds, possible universes out there where, you know, this, is, this was how the novel started. This was how the novel started. Uh, the Museum of Civilization. And then it's interesting to see what the title of the book is in German, Das Licht der Letzten Tage. Uh, apologies to all my German listeners. I'm sure I have thousands uh, that I just butchered your language. Um, but what that means is In the Light of Last Days, which I think is a beautiful title. I absolutely love that. I don't know that I would have picked it up. I would have picked up In the Light of Last Days, although somebody told me it was a, an apocalyptic post-apocalyptic narrative. I probably still would have. Um, but they're, they're all possible titles. And they tell us that, you know, this narrative at one point wasn't fixed. It wasn't completely nailed down. Even for Emily St. John Mandel developing it, at one point she wanted to, you know, write a novel about a guy named Arthur Leander. And at one point she wanted, so she wanted to tell the story of an actor. And she wanted to tell, you know, a story of a traveling Shakespearean troupe. And then she wanted to write about, you know, a bunch of people being stuck at an airport. This image that she had in her mind from all of these 
planes that had been downed after 9-11 and these runways filled with um, people who, you know, had nowhere to go. And, and she said it was sort of a lonely image. So all these ideas running around, running around in her mind. And then they coalesced into the novel that we read as Station Eleven. And at that point, the narrative becomes fixed. It's no longer something that's amorphous. It's no longer fluid. It is now concrete, right? It's hardened up. But we get this moment near the beginning of Station Eleven where August and Kirsten are sort of cloud-busting, pipe-dreaming, thinking about other possible realities that might have been. August said that given an infinite number of parallel universes, there had to be one where there had been no pandemic. And he'd grown up to be a physicist as planned. Or one where there had been a pandemic, but the virus had had a subtly different genetic structure. Some minuscule variants that rendered it survivable. In any case, a universe in which civilization hadn't been so brutally interrupted. When I first started teaching Station Eleven, I would, you know, read this passage and we'd get to the virus having a subtly different genetic structure and we'd just talk about it hypothetically. And now in the wake not the wake, but in the midst of the COVID pandemic, we're living one of August's parallel universes. We're living a world where a virus that could have wiped out, you know, the world in the way that it does in Station Eleven had a subtly different genetic structure, one that has rendered it survivable. Now, clearly there are lots of people who have not survived COVID, but it's certainly not the Georgia flu. It's, it's not the same thing. You know, we've got the map, we've got the territory, we've got the representation, we've got the reality. Emily St. John Mandel could have written a novel about a virus that had a subtly different genetic structure, some minuscule variants that rendered it survivable, but she didn't. She wrote a narrative that was about one that killed nearly everybody on the planet. That's the narrative she wrote. She didn't write a novel about how there had been no pandemic and August grew up to be a physicist, but I'm sure that there are other novels where we have someone like August who does that very thing. We have lots of instances of narratives where society has been brutally interrupted, and we're looking at a number of those in this course. What Emily St. John Mandel has stuck in the middle of her novel is a rumination between two characters about possible worlds, about other realities, and this is subject matter that um, theoretical physicists like Michio Kaku are playing with, the idea that every decision that we make might produce a whole new universe, uh, that there is somewhere out there another me who zigged instead of zagged, who wore, I don't know, um, a t-shirt instead of a sweater vest. And we've got Kirsten and, 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 and August, these fictional characters doing something that I'm sure that many of my students and many of you who are listening or watching have done in the past year where we say, what if COVID hadn't happened? What if I wasn't in lockdown? What if I could have gone to university in person instead of having to take it online? What if, what if, what if? Speculations about possibilities, parallel universes. Kirsten lays there trying to imagine, as St. John Mandel writes it, this life playing out somewhere at the present moment. A parallel universe where my comics are real. If you have Amazon Prime, you can check out a TV show from my childhood, from the 1970s, some 
fun, funky, retro science fiction called Space 1999, where the moon is blown out of orbit, and there's already a moon base there, and the people who were doing research and all sorts of stuff there are blasted out in the space. And when I read Station Eleven, and I read about Dr. Eleven's, uh, the com- this comic book within the book, I read about Dr. Eleven's space station that he was on. I was like, wow, that sounds like Space 1999. Space 1999 is a TV series, is an exploration of the very thing that Kirsten is saying. A parallel universe where, to some degree, her comics are real. Where a space station is floating through space in search of a home. It's arguably also the plot of uh, the science fiction series Battlestar Galactica. A bunch of ships instead of a space station, but a group of people trying to find a home. So when Kirsten says she wonders about a parallel universe where my comics are real, I come back and I go, well, I know about that parallel universe. It feels an awful lot like this TV show, or it feels an awful lot like this this other TV series, or it feels like this book, or it feels, you know, the, the parallel universe she's imagining, <laughs> this fictional character imagining a parallel universe. I love the levels of uh, fiction that we're diving into here. Um, is, is something that, that, that is, is crucial to, um, I think our appreciation of narrative, of fiction, of story, of why we love story, that we will sit and imagine other versions of life. You've done it this year. I guarantee. What if I hadn't been stuck at home with COVID? What if I could have only done whatever it was that you perhaps planned to do this year. Something different from what ended up happening. She also imagines a parallel universe where space travel was invented. Well, guess what? Space travel was invented, right? It really happened. And there was a movie back in the 1980s based upon a book about the Mercury program uh, in America to send Americans into space. And it's been turned into a TV series by National Geographic. It's on, it's on Disney Plus, and it's called The Right Stuff. And uh, and it is the true. I'm going to put that in quotation marks. Story of the Right Stuff. Because if you were to watch, <laughs> this is fascinating stuff to me. If you were to watch the movie The Right Stuff from the 1980s, and you were to watch the TV series of The Right Stuff, just by virtue of having different actors and different embodied performances of these people, you would get slightly parallel universes. Even the way in which these narratives focus their attention on certain aspects of the book that both the film and the TV series are based on creates almost a parallel universe. And I can hear some people pushing back and saying, well, wait a second, that stuff really happened. Sure, but once we represent it in a narrative, it becomes a sort of fiction because we're not really seeing that thing. We're only seeing a map. We're only seeing a representation of that event. Nevertheless, we certainly have the parallel universe where space travel was invented. Now, I suppose what Kirsten's really getting at here is the ability to go to Mars, But we have those too, don't we, right? We have narratives about going to Mars. We have narratives about going further than Mars. If you've watched the series, The Expanse, you know that there are narratives where someone has imagined a parallel universe where space travel was invented and where you can do it much faster than we actually can. But there's also an interesting node, an interesting moment of connection with these ideas with the right stuff, with the actual space program, and a series that's been on Apple TV Plus 
Why is everybody plussing? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Apple's streaming service. Talk about parallel universes, right? Netflix, Apple, so many streaming services. Anyway, I digress. Um, we've got this series right now called For All Mankind. Second, second season was just released. And it imagines a genuinely parallel universe where the space program is very different, where it wasn't Americans who first set foot on the moon, but the Russians. And that this changes the nature of the space race and all sorts of different things happen. And it imagines those possibilities. All you have to do is look at the poster for For All Mankind and you can see astronauts with M16s on the moon and you go, that never happened but we can imagine it. And this to me is remarkable, absolutely, utterly remarkable that we can imagine possibility. Sometimes we just imagine mundane possibilities. We imagine what might happen if we went out on a date with so-and-so. We imagine what might have happened if we hadn't gone out on a date with so-and-so. What if, I always think to myself, I had gotten to be a filmmaker? I think I've mentioned this before, that that's something that I wanted to do and I didn't know where to go straight out of university. And so I ended up in a different career path. Well, one of the things that probably wouldn't have happened is that I probably wouldn't have met my wife. And that means I wouldn't have my kids. And there's just this bizarre spiral of, you know, like tumblers that click down. If we change one thing, how many other things do we change? But th that we can imagine these possibilities at all says something about what it means to be a human being, that we have imaginations at all, that we imagine when we're children, but we also imagine as adults, we just speculate in different ways. We have these counterfactual musings, these alternate histories of our own lives, never mind the space program, where we imagine what might have happened if we'd zigged when we zagged, if we, if we would only zigged when we zagged, if I only hadn't worn this sweater vest today. Um, the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow is a great example of this, where the movie splits off her reality, the character's reality, into these two trajectories. You watch the whole film with two narratives going on at the same time. And at the very end of the film, there's a dark-haired version of her and there's a light-haired version of her, and they walk towards each other and they meld. They meld and become one. But it's, it's fascinating to watch the whole film because you get to see her life playing out based upon different choices. The episode Remedial Chaos Theory of Community plays with this in a million ways, just asking the question, how would things change if someone else went and got the pizza? What if, what if, what if? Marvel Comics used to have a series devoted to this, and it was called What If? What if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? Well, you'd have all sorts of lawsuits on your hands. No, um, that, actually, that's not true. It's what if, you know, what if Spider-Man wanted to be in the MCU? Thank, you know, thank goodness Sony and Disney could, could get along for a little while. What if Conan the Barbarian were stranded in the 20th century? Well, as it turns out, he ends up fighting Captain America. What if Rick James, what if Rick James, you know, the musician had become the Hulk? What? That's a crazy. I mean, all of these are. I'm sure there are some of you who are like, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I don't know who half of these characters are. Um, what about, oh, I mean, many of you probably know about Spider-Man and the Hulk because of the films. Um, but Marvel Studios is producing an animated series for Disney Plus 
what if? What if? What if uh, instead of you know Captain America being Captain America, uh, it was Agent Carter who became Captain? What if? What if that happened? What does it change? And some people get very, very upset about this sort of thing. You say, you can't do that to that character. You can't, you can't make Thor a woman. This happened a few years back. Thor became a woman. Well, Thor didn't. Thor was still out there, but the, the character of Thor and the focus of the comic became about a female Thor, a female uh, hero who held the hammer, Mjolnir. And people were like, oh, you can't do that. They did. That's the thing. That's the fun thing about fiction is you can do that. People are like, you, you, you can't tell that story. What if I do, right? And if it's published, now that story's out there. It's a parallel universe. It's a possibility. It's a possibility where things aren't the way they are. What if, what if, what if? There is an Argentinian writer named, what, there was an Argentinian writer named Jorge Luis Borges. And he wrote lovely, beautiful poetry and short stories that blow my mind. They make me think about things in deep and new and strange ways. And I've taught this course before where I actually assigned this short story. So, you know, if you're listening or you're watching and you're like, this is intriguing to me, then I highly recommend you track yourself down a copy of the short story, The Garden of Forking Paths, and check it out. But in this story, which was originally published in English, at least in a mystery magazine, uh, this guy figures out that he needs to send a message to uh, his, his superiors during the war. And uh, what he's going to do is he's going to assassinate someone who has the name of the place where some stuff is going on. That's all you need to know about that. But then Borges throws in this subtext about this book uh, that is a labyrinth. There was this guy who was supposed to build this amazing labyrinth, the greatest labyrinth there'd ever been. Like a maze, but a labyrinth is a little different than a maze. A maze is meant to confound. A labyrinth is meant to actually get us through it. And no one ever saw the labyrinth, they thought. And the guy died before he finished it. But he finished this really weird book that was ultimately non-linear, a little bit like Station Eleven in that regard, that uh, it moved around in time. But it also had things happen like a guy would die on one page and then you'd read the next page and he was alive again which in its own way is a little bit like Station Eleven too, isn't it? But th this wasn't just a nonlinear narrative where one fixed reality had happened. This instead was a narrative where all the possibilities were playing out. All the possibilities were happening inside the same narrative, kind of like that third Harry Potter book slash movie, um, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, where we get to the end of the film and they start playing with realities, like the what ifs, what if we had, what if we could, you know, go and change this thing. And there's a little bit of that going on with the Garden of Forking Paths. But the idea here is that, and, and, and the characters discuss this in this short story, that in other realities, other things could be happening. The characters muse, maybe we're friends in another reality, you know, you are my enemy. And it turns out that that person actually is. They, you know, he's there to kill the guy. And so Borges is sort of, he's considered to some degree an originator of this idea. I don't want to say the originator because I think there are other people who were playing with these concepts. And other people like uh, Luigi Pirandello in his play Six Characters in Search of an Author, in which characters from a play 
somehow manifest in the real world and talk to the actors who are going to perform as them. The characters talk to the actors. And one of the things that one of these characters says is that we will always do what we do. We are characters. There's a, there's a concept in Pirandello's play that every time you open a book, the characters are always going to do the same thing. And you might say, well, of course they are. What else would they possibly do? Uh, given the way that people talk about fictional narratives, I think we think they're going to change their minds at some point. The way that fans get mad about the way that the Star Wars films played out, you'd think they hope at some point that they'll put in the Blu-ray or the DVD or they'll open up that digital file and watch that one more time and the thing they didn't want to have happen will, it won't happen. No, once the narrative is fixed, it will always happen that way. It's one of the reasons that books are kind of comforting. Narratives are kind of comforting. But every time we open the book for Station Eleven, we know Arthur Leander is going to die. And that's not going to change. Garden of Forking Paths starts imagining narratives where it could, where a bunch of possibilities would be present, that there could be different outcomes, that there could be a different narrative, or in the language of our semester, a different map. The idea of multiple possible narratives is an implicit undermining, says Grant Voth, who um, in his course on world literature talks about Borges. He said, the idea of multiple possible narratives is an implicit undermining of the fascism of the 1940s. Borges was horrified that when he was born, there were no Nazis. Like, sure, there were probably fascists or people who believed that, but the Nazi party didn't exist. Nazism didn't exist. And then it became a reality. You think about that in terms of possibility, the thing that, what if we did this? And those what ifs can be beautiful and wonderful, but they can also be terribly monstrous. And although, Voth says, Borges was of an apolitical writer, his general stance was that any philosophical or political system proposes its own version of the truth. That any philosophical or political system proposes its own version of the truth. And what was terrifying to him was that fascism forces its truth. It says, this is the only truth that you can know. And all the other truths we're going to burn. We're going to get rid of those. We're going to make sure that you don't know about those other truths. That's how Borges saw fascism. And what Borges' story, The Garden of Forking Paths, and this rumination that St. John Mandel's characters are, are engaging in, possible possible worlds, possible universes, other narratives, what ifs. Those are, those are narratives that have embedded within them the possibility of other outcomes, other truths, and not a single truth, potentially, but multiple ones, multiple epistemologies, perhaps. George R.R. R. Martin is often quoted uh, as saying, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. That narratives, Martin seems to be saying, books in particular, I think he's being a bit um, being a bit particular. I think narratives in general, that's why I'm teaching a course on narrative across media, instead of just narrative in books. I think a reader, a viewer, both live thousands of lives before they die. People who never read and never watch live only one. 
And I think that that's true in a narrative sense. I mean, we can watch all sorts of other things. You can watch like a gardening show on how to learn, you know, how you plant your trees or whatever. You can learn, watch a show on how to fix your car, or how to fix up your home. And that's all great. Don't get me wrong. I don't have a problem with any of that. I'm really glad that YouTube, YouTube has so much good information for me, you know, to know how to fix things that I would never have known how to fix. But what Martin's talking about here is narrative. And I'm not making a distinction here, by the way, between nonfiction narratives and fictional narratives. Narratives, whatever they might be, give us the opportunity to play a what if with that book, with that film, with that TV show. What if I was that person? Like watching a movie like Ford versus Ferrari, I could never, ever, ever be the character that Christian Bale plays. I have, I have vertigo and I think traveling at that kind of speed in a vehicle would set it off and I wouldn't be able to do it. But I get a window, I get a little glimpse, I get a little what if. And certainly while I watch that film, I ask myself questions like, what would I do in their shoes? What would I have done if someone had said that to me? What if, what if, what if? Well, if we are to accept George R. R. Martin's concept that a reader lives a thousand lives before they die... And those who never read live only one, then what would we say about a gamer? Because gamers play narratives that don't have fixed outcomes. That doesn't mean, I want to make it absolutely clear right out the gates, just doesn't mean I think that gamers are superior or that, you know, games are better than books. They're different. And I want to talk today about how game narrative is different because it's one of the types of narratives that we've been looking at this semester. And this section of Emily St. John Mandel's text is the, the, the moment when we get like a door into what game narrative does because game narrative is sort of like hypertext narrative. The very thing that Borges was imagining to some degree in his Garden of Forking Paths. Because, well, back in the 80s, there were these books, and they were called Choose Your Own Adventure books. And those were books where it wasn't always a fixed outcome. You'd read a couple pages and it would say, um, and it was always written in second person. So it was like, you are walking down a path. You come to a fork in the road. There's one to your left, one to your right, and there's one going directly ahead. Which do you choose? If you choose the one to the left, turn to page whatever. If you turn, if you want to go straight ahead, you turn to this other page. And if you want to go in this other direction, you turn to this other page. And this was some of the first narrative that branched off into possible worlds, into possible realities. And then video games started doing it. I remember when I was in junior high coding a text-based game which pretty much did the same sorts of stuff. I mean, you, you could only, you could only type in like yes, no answers to stuff that the game would, would, would generate. There was a game that I played with a friend. It was called wizardry. And, uh, you know, we used to laugh about the repetition of the narrative, but they would do things like, uh, you know, like a troll approaches you, will you fight? And then you could, you could press yes or no. So you had choice. Books don't normally give us choice. We don't get choice when we read a book. We just choose the book, and that in and of itself is a sort of parallel universe thing right there. You just choose your own adventure. Which book will I read? But games coming out of this history of choose your own adventure and these branching narratives pre present us with many possibilities. We play The Last of Us, a post-apocalyptic uh, video game. There are many possibilities for how the narrative will play out. And better games have better replayability. 
You know, if they're always very, very close to the same, then it's kind of like you played a movie with some choices. But at the same time, that's still hugely appealing to gamers. But now we've got all sorts of games that have a much wider range of choice. And those games present us with the very thing that August and Kirsten are talking about. Possible narratives. Narratives that that don't play out in the same fixed way every time. Now, they are limited by whatever the game's focus is. So early in the semester, I asked my students to take a look at the video game Plague Incorporated. This is a game that asks the question, what if you could design a virus to kill the planet? And bizarre as it may be, this was one of the top downloads <laughs> when COVID first sort of hit North America. When when we were all going down into we were going into lockdown, the uh, App Store for Apple showed Plague Incorporated in the top ten again. hadn't been there for years. Now it was suddenly back. What was it doing there? Well, apparently we were interested in seeing what might happen if, you know, we wiped out the entire planet. How very dark, but this is the musing of the human mind. Remember that one of our first written narratives, one of the first narratives we put to page was the flood, the wiping out of, of all life, except for a remnant. Noah's boat, Utnapishtim's boat. This has been on our minds for a very, very long time. Not just the death of self, but the death of nearly everyone. Nearly everyone. Not everyone. That's hard to imagine. The cessation of our species is potentially something we can't imagine. Or refuse to imagine. Might be a better way to say it. More recently, I had my students take a look at Pandemic. This board game. Now... Plague Incorporated is, can you build the virus to wipe out the planet? Pandemic is, can you beat the virus that will wipe out the planet? And I had a really fascinating experience playing this with my family this summer. Someone loaned it to us. And this sort of game isn't really my wife's thing, you know? Um, A little bit complex in terms of rules, uh, a lot of moving parts. Normally not interested in this sort of game. But... She has been, I don't want to say fascinated, but really, really interested in COVID and in what's going on in the world with this pandemic. So playing a game about it gave the opportunity, I would say, for her to imagine being able to fix it. And those are the sorts of narratives that she loves. She loves a narrative where there's problem solving and people solve the problem. This game gave her an opportunity to do so. We played it. And if you've ever played Pandemic, you know... It's really hard to win at first, and it takes a while for you to figure out what you need to do. And we lost, as you might as you might expect. We lost the first time. Now, normally, it's time to pack the game up. My wife says, let's play again. Let's play again. She's invested in this. Why do we play games in the first place? We might ask ourselves, why in a time when there are real serious concerns, would we pass the time with video games or board games. Why would we bother? Well, as it turns out, first and foremost, they're fun. And we should not rule that part out. It's fun to play games. It's fun to read books. It's fun to watch movies. It's fun to play games. Now, when we play a narrative game, that's distinct from other types of games. Because we aren't just playing with this set of rules and a feedback system. We, to some degree imagine ourselves 
doing this thing. There's a part of our brain that, 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 that imagines that we're really doing this. And if you don't believe me, you should watch some people play Pandemic sometime, especially the real-time dice game of it. There's a lot of shouting involved. Why do we get so upset when we play games and we start to lose? Nothing's really happening, and yet we're intensely invested in the outcomes. I find especially if we can attach narrative. Years ago, when I was working with uh, teens, with youth, I came up with a game, a running around. We used to call them wide games. You'd do them at summer camp, and it meant you were going to go all over the campus. And I took a few of the games that we played, things like Capture the Flag, things like Predator Prey, and I combined them into a game that was based on Star Wars, based on the Star Wars uh, universe. And most of the time when, when you've got kids who are kind of awkward, who aren't really athletic, they don't want to play those sorts of games. Like you say, okay, we're all going to go and we're going to play basketball. A lot of kids would be like, not me. I'm not interested because they've, they've already assumed that they are not a basketball player. But in this game, you would be an X-Wing fighter. You would be a TIE fighter. You would be the Millennium Falcon. And I've never seen the kids who normally don't run, run so fast. As soon as there was a narrative element to a game like this, they wanted to win. They wanted that speed to be there. The narrative element elevated the experience for them. Fascinating to, fascinating to see. I mean, I'm not doing any sort of rigorous study there, but I noticed that people who would not normally be really invested in physical activity got intensely invested in physical activity when they were a tie bomber. And finally, we're looking at this storytelling game called The Quiet Year. And the way that this game works is that you have a regular deck of cards and some other uh, things that you need to sort of to play the game. There's, there's dice that are involved as well. But basically, the game gives you a prompt based upon the random card you drew to describe a week in the life of a post-apocalyptic community. So Plague Incorporates, Plague Incorporated imagines, you know, that you design the virus that wipes out the planet. Pandemic imagines you stopping that from happening. And the quiet year imagines that maybe it's happened, whatever it is, like, could be the pandemic, could be a nuclear uh, holocaust, could be any number of things. But something has wiped out most people and you're living in a post-apocalyptic world. And what happens in that post-apocalyptic world in this quiet year that in many ways mirrors the gentler uh, apocalypse of Station Eleven? The game involves drawing on a map. Everybody has to draw um, aspects of the narrative onto a map. So it's a map-making game as well. But as a storytelling game, it's, it's fascinating because there's no winner or loser with a game like this. There's no winner or loser. And I've done this with students in this course before. And what blows me away is the amount of text they generate. These are students who would say that they find writing difficult, but they can tell a story. They can tell me a story with a, with a narrative prompt about this quiet year and and their imaginations whew, where they go with it it's bananas and everybody sort of has to play off of the initial like you can't if someone says there's a giant roller coaster nearby you can't say no there isn't you have to be like yep there's a giant roller coaster what's on that giant roller coaster let's find out right and and working together students generate amazing stories and again about things that have never happened concerning people who will never live fiction 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 
What if, what if, what if? But what's what's fun about The Quiet Year is that unlike Station Eleven, where again, I'm going to open it up and Arthur Leander will always die on that page. And there is a, there's a, there's, there's an, there's something entertaining about that. Again, it's that, you know, something secure about picking up a book where we already know the narrative and appreciating it for, for the other things that it brings to us. Why do we watch movies we already know the outcome on? Like if spoilers matter so much, why? Why do we, why do we go back to those movies over and over again? That's, that's a, that's another digression. I'm just full of digressions today. It's the sweater vest. Um, but the, the quiet year is going to be different every time you play it. Even if you told relatively the same story in the same space or tried to, the, the random nature of the cards would refuse your ability to completely tell the same story twice. I play Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, and I have played scenarios, the same scenario, over and over and over again with different people. And what is fascinating for me, both as a player and as an academic, is to see how diverse the outcomes can be based on choices that the players are making in that narrative game. Because that's what role-playing games are at the end of the day, is they're narrative games. The earliest, uh, some of the earliest um, work for Dungeons & Dragons, going all the way back to 19, the 1980s, says that each adventure is like writing a novel. It, some degree, that's very true. But the novel changes every time. And it, it is also the introduction of randomizing elements like the cards from The Quiet Year or dice that can change that outcome. So game narrative is distinct from other forms of narrative, not only because it's different in terms of its media, it's not text and pictures in the same way that comics are, although there are certainly are text and pictures in most games. Um, there's cinematic aspects. I mean, you play The Last of Us, it feels like a movie at certain points, but they're not movies and they're not books but they are, narrative games are ultimately narratives. They're interactive narratives. To use the language of uh, Linda Hutchins' A Theory of Adaptation, which is uh, the book that this podcast actually takes its title from, Triple Bladed Sword, uh, the three blades are not just the science fiction, fantasy, and horror. It's the read, watch, and play, right? Um, so we read, we watch, and we play narratives. We read, we watch, and we play narratives. And played narratives are interactive. And because they're interactive, they provide the opportunity for the multiplicity of outcomes of those possible worlds, possible narratives that Borges talked about, that Kirsten and August are musing on in, in Station Eleven. The possibility to see what if in a way that allows us a sort of cognitive distance. We know we're safe. We're not actually creating a real plague. We know that we're not really, you know, down on the ground trying to stop one. We know that we're not really living in a post-apocalyptic world. And yet we love to play games, narrative games. At this point, narrative games are often outselling uh, films for, uh, you know, like in terms of the blockbuster game of the year, it's probably going to outsell the blockbuster film of the year. Let's come back to the linear narrative of Station Eleven, near the end of the section titled The Airplanes, where Miranda is 
on the shores in Singapore. So remember that this is one of those uh, potential um, titles, right? Uh, Singapore, Singapore Bay, right? For the uh, Singapore Harbor for this 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 novel, um, and we we again this is this is a nonlinear narrative. So we actually jump back at this point in the narrative to a point really early in the book, right before Miranda gets the Georgia flu that will ultimately kill her. Um, so she, you know, we're, we're at that point now where she is back on the shore and we get to find out what happens to her. And she's musing in a similar way to Kirsten in August, although she's not saying it is an overt away, but we are still clearly dealing with the possibilities of counterfactuals of an alternate history of other narrative possibilities. She was thinking about the way she'd always taken the world. She'd always taken for granted that the world had certain people in it, either central to her days or unseen and unfrequently thought of how without any one of these people, the world is a subtly and unmistakably altered place. The dial turned just one or two degrees that the world changes without just one person. Borges has a poem called every death diminishes me. And I think about that, like that one, that dial turned one or two degrees. If I turn the dial just one or two degrees, who disappears? Who appears? Who lives longer? Who lives shorter? Where do I live? What am I doing? What's happening there? Right. And there's something so beautiful in the, there's a sort of sorrow, something very bittersweet about the musing that she's having as she's looking out at these carrier ships. And these carrier ships, by the way, are something that friends of mine who have read Station Eleven, as well as students who, you know, are are reading it for my course, have commented on. And they always say, like, I wonder who's on the carrier ships and I wonder what they're doing. And and is there a, a whole society being formed on those carrier ships? Like, are the people who are out there, will they survive the Georgia flu? And if so, what are they up to? And it it it's it's very much like a number of points in Borges' short story where he plants a little narrative seed but doesn't expand upon it. So many viewers and readers will say, I didn't like that book or I didn't like that movie or I didn't like that TV show because they didn't tie up all the narrative threads. And I'm like, I'm glad they didn't. I like narratives where everything is a little messy at the end. Like, sure, I want some closure, but I don't want to know everything because that's not like life. Life has these little fracture moments where we don't find out what happens and we get these little narrative nodes and they become a moment of what if in our own minds. And I can't help but wonder how many novels have been written, how many films have been written with somebody reading somebody else's narrative and saying, what if the focus here was on those carrier ships instead of on this shoreline. So these are big musings, big thoughts today, coming out of not only Station Eleven as a novel, but game narrative in general. The possibilities of the way things could be if the dial was turned just one or two degrees.